0: This is the hour of Doom and Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a fortress of fortitude in an unfortuitous world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones, of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net.
1: And I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy, and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife.
0: And purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so bright, I gotta wear shades. (laughs) Uh, We don't need nightlights either.
1: There you go. (laughs) Thank you, darling.
0: (laughs) That's how bright you are. Uh
1: Like the sun. (laughs) That's right.
0: Now, on this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom, plus the unconventional medical wisdom, and absolutely free, you're going to also get random mutterings from an old geezer we have locked up (laughs) in the basement. Well...
1: Is that you? We don't have a basement.
0: That's true. We're in
1: South Florida. Six inches down, you hit water.
0: All right. Unless you
1: can swim really well.
0: I'm kidding. That geezer (laughs) is me. But (laughs) hey, whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for tough times, that's what we're into. But to hear all this great information, you got to listen to this.
1: Absolutely. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Please.
0: Or don't. The world isn't going to heck in a handbasket, is it? Oh, it might just be. Oh,
1: no. You're going to have to ask... Putin about that one.
0: (laughs) And many other people. But what happens if the hospitals are out of commission? There's nowhere else to turn. Who's going to deal with illness and injury? Don't look at me. I'm just a janitor around here.
1: The The janitor with an MD degree. Just
0: cleaning up. So it's you actually out there. So you better get off your duff and learn some stuff. Get Maybe a medical kit. Amy, do you know where you can find some?
1: Um, Yeah, it's store.doomandbloom.net.
0: There you go. Hey, before we get started, I just want to mention that the new fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook has won the Book Excellence Award in 2022 in the medical category. So Yay. we are very excited Woo. about that.
1: I'm the audience. Yeah.
0: On Amazon you'll see that we rank 4.8 out of 5 Over 1,100 reviews And we are so glad and we appreciate the support from our readers, listeners, and viewers If you haven't heard about our greatly expanded new book Check the black and white version out on Amazon Or the color version at store.doomandbloom.net Today I want to talk a little bit about Nasal Trauma Indeed, it's a rare individual who's never had a nosebleed, and a lot of people have over the course of their lives, been the recipient of a punch in the nose or other facial trauma. The nose has many tiny little blood vessels, most of them located in the septum. That's the wall between the nostrils. Now, unlike the eyes, which are protected in sockets in the skull, the nose protrudes out from the face, and that leaves it vulnerable for injuries. Nosebleeds are also called epistaxis, and it can occur at any age, but spontaneous ones are most likely seen in children or the elderly. The majority originate in the front of the nose, but some of the heavier bleeds actually start further back. An anterior nosebleed tends to come from one nostril, while a posterior nosebleed actually can involve both. Nosebleeds can, of course, occur from trauma to the face. There can also be caused by factors that affect the inside of the nose, such as excessive picking, don't do that. Or irritation, let's say, from upper respiratory infections, people with COVID wound up having some of that. Environmental factors such as particularly cold or dry climates may also play a role, as can medications that prevent clotting. In unusual cases, underlying illness such as high blood pressure, pregnancy, or well, that's not an illness, but pregnancy, or small tumors called polyps may be implicated. Deaths due to nosebleeds, well, they're very, very rare, but bleeding can be significant and very, very scary. Still, most can be handled successfully with limited supplies in an austere environment. To stop a nosebleed, what do you do? You sit the patient upright with the head tipped slightly forward. You may have been taught to tilt the head backwards, but this causes the blood to just run down the back of the throat. Have them breathe through the mouth while they are in this position. Then you have the patient... Spit out any blood in the mouth and throat instead of swallowing it because blood indeed can irritate the stomach. Now, using your thumb and index finger, what you would want to do is you firmly pinch the soft part of the nose with the thumb and index finger just below the bone and press towards the face. Are you apply, demonstrating that? I am indeed. Because <laughs> I heard your to, nose get a little To nobody, there. <laughs> to nobody because... I'm back. <laughs> we're on audio. So you're going to want to apply pressure here for about 5 to 10 minutes. the important thing is to be patient because these things don't always stop just right away.
1: Oh, boy, do we know that. Yeah, I've that's... had my fair share, haven't I? You
0: indeed have. Oof. And, Sadly. Uh, and it can be scary if it's a significant, significant amount.
1: Oh, yeah. All that red blood mm-hmm. just like in the clots.
0: Oof. Now, it's not a bad idea to put an ice pack on the affected side because cold constricts blood vessels and might help stop the bleeding. Great idea. Of course, being patient, will you still want to check and see when the patient's nose stops bleeding. So check about every 10 minutes, I'd say. Right. If still bleeding, just uh, I would say that it might be a good idea to blow out some accumulated blood once only and then hold the nose for another 10 minutes. You know, there are nasal sprays like Afrin. That's oxymetazoline, or I'm probably not pronouncing it right, oxymetazoline.
1: Who knows? Right. Or It could be either way.
0: Right. That's true. Or neosynephrine, that's another thing that can also help stop the bleed. And you can also add it to a nasal packing too. But you just have to be aware that these drugs usually cause an elevated blood pressure. Well, I won't say usually, but they cause it in a number of people.
1: But you know what I would say is probably the minute amount that you're using... If you think about putting it on, um, say, a dental roll Uh or a a little, like, two-by-two-inch square gauze Mm -hmm. and then clamping that with, um, I guess, like a Kelly clamp Mm -hmm. and then putting it up there, I mean, how much is really going to be absorbed in the system? I think probably those warnings are for people who use them, you know, two sprays each nostril three times a day for... You
0: know, right, and you know, you for can-
1: allergies and use them all the time. I think once you've got kind of that level, that it may affect the blood pressure. Right.
0: People get tolerant of it too, and so they indeed may wind up using it a lot
1: and overusing it. Right, yeah, not right. following the the limitations of the directions, but like, oh, I yeah. used it, I don't know, an hour ago, and I'm stuffy again, and they'll just th- put another spray in without thinking about it. I think those are probably the individuals that are more likely to have a higher uh, blood pressure pressure as a result. Yeah. I doubt the one time that you're checking or taking care of a bleeding nose that you really have to worry about that.
0: Okay. So I just mentioned uh, packing of the nose. And well, and you as medic, you would be the person doing the packing. So to place a simple anterior packing into the nose, you're going to want to have gauze impregnated with petroleum jelly. What you would do is you grab it with the forceps or blunt long tweezers or a long clamp, and... What's the ins- name of that
1: special one we have in Well, our- it's a bayonet forceps. Bayonet yeah, forceps. so a bayonet
0: forceps would be the thing. You have an excellent kit, by the way. Well, and, Thank you. And the things I'm talking about are pretty much all in your kit. Yep. So what you do is you would uh, get some gauze, impregnate it with, let's say, petroleum jelly, grab it with your bayonet forceps, and insert it carefully into the anterior nasal cavity so
1: you start with one end and you start working right. your way, and exactly pushing more and more in exactly. almost like an accordion
0: right yes exactly that's exactly what it's packing is it
1: like. in like an accordion f- stacking it on top right. of each other
0: right the first layer is inserted straight back along the floor of the na- anterior nasal ca- cavity not in an upward angle so you want to get it on the floor just like you mentioned yep and uh then, by the way, you can use an instrument that's also in Amy's kit called a nasal speculum that can be used to open the nostril further to get a better view.
1: Yeah, it's it's shaped like a cone where it's smaller at the tip and it gets a little wider and it's split in half. Right. So you can open that up and that gives you the space to see where you're placing Stretch that the gauze nostril also. out so you can see what's right, going on there. Right.
0: So additional layers of packing are then added in <clears throat> accordion fold sort of fashion mm-hmm. uh, and and you use the the nasal speculum to hold the layers down as new ones are inserted, packing's continued until the nasal cavity is filled. Now, be aware that you can traumatize the nasal cavity if placement isn't done carefully. Now, you should know that a nasal packing can be very uncomfortable. Significant pressure is usually required to be effective, and the packing must stay in place for a good 48 hours or, or so. That's a long time to breathe through your mouth.
1: Or or just your other nostril.
0: That's true. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. In stubborn cases, you would want to cut maybe a 4-inch by 2-inch strip of chitosam or quick-clock gauze, what we call a hemostatic dressing, and carefully place in the nostril with a blunt tweezers or Kelly clamp. Now, be sure to leave a small piece outside so this uh, dressing doesn't wind up getting lost inside your nose. Right, right. Getting
1: sniffed up into the sinuses or... Go into the back of your throat.
0: Exactly right. Now, of course, these gauzes can dry up if they they stay in place for 24 hours or 48 hours. Sure. They dry out, moisten it with water from maybe a bulb syringe.
1: Right, or a little saline.
0: Or saline before removing. No spray. Uh, alternatively, you can flush a bleeding nostril with sterile saline. That's another option. Um, you would then introduce a thin strip of cloth that you drench in epinephrine from an EpiPen. You can actually... Take some from EpiPen or other anaphylactic shock kit and pack it gently into the nostril and it should work as well. If you apply pressure to for about 5 to 10 minutes, don't remove the packing for several hours. You should get a good result. Of course, in these circumstances, you want to be careful about blowing the nose later on to eject clots because it can restart the bleeding.
1: No now a natural hemostatic
0: product is geranium oil you may not have known that a few drops on a strip of gauze can be placed in the bleeding nostril with good results in a lot of cases Uh, yarrow that's another time-honored option you crush the leaves between the fingers and if you didn't have gauze you just insert them right into the nostril and you leave them in place until the bleeding stops of course apply pressure don't forget to apply external pressure and then remove them uh, a true posterior bleed. Now, that's going to be difficult to stop without specialized equipment. There are balloon catheters, such as the Rhino Rocket or the Simpson Plug.
1: Which, by the way, are very expensive, because yes. I looked into those for our kit. Right. They are very expensive.
0: And basically, they're tubes that you put up into the nostril of as far deep as you think the bleeding is going. Here I am, sticking my finger in my <laughs> nose. and He's <laughs> demonstrating
1: for you guys. Fill
0: up the balloon, usually with a little water, sterile water, and uh, that sort of applies pressure to the area that's bleeding inside it's a
1: water balloon
0: right it's just a little
1: water balloon
0: some people might even use a urinary catheter the ones that have a balloon there and you can actually use that now once you've had a significant nosebleed you're going to do anything possible to not have another one so here are some strategies that are going to decrease (laughs) the chances of a recurrence
1: wait i'm going to tell the first one okay control your high blood pressure Oh, yeah. Because a lot of people get nosebleeds because they have high blood pressure. So control your chronic conditions.
0: Exactly. Good idea. That's number
1: one. Go ahead.
0: And monitor your blood thinners if you're on blood thinners. Yes. Yes. Now, another thing you can do is you can apply petroleum jelly to the inside of your nose frequently. In in patients with frequent nosebleeds, is chronic irritation of the walls of the nostril, that might be the problem. So you want to protect this area by maybe putting a little bit of petroleum jelly, jelly gently inside the nose, especially before you're going to sleep. Of course, for kids, you tell them to stop picking her nose. Stop <laughs> picking your nose. And you should, of course, keep fingernails on kids and adults, really, very well trimmed.
1: You know, uh, sometimes that chronic uh, dryness could be from your environment. So it depends on where you live. Like, we don't have that issue in South Florida because it's so humid down here. But... Um, like my older daughter, who now lives in Denver from Chicago, yeah, that's dry. It's very dry, right? Yeah, if so you, she's actually doing the Vaseline thing that you suggested, the petroleum jelly.
0: So if you have, she does that. So if you have preps to actually give you power and you do have electricity, mm-hmm. then humidifiers, things like that, would be actually pretty help, helpful. Absolutely. Now, if you don't care for petroleum jelly, you can always use sterile saline nose drops during the day, just keep to keep the nasal passages moist. Um, To make that, all you have to do is mix a teaspoon of salt into a quart of clean water, boil it for 20 minutes, and let it cool before flushing each nostril.
1: You know, I was just thinking, if you were outdoors, let's just think, some long-term survival thing, and you needed humidity for some reason, you know, you could take very hot rocks and put them in a bucket of water.
0: Right, or very hot rocks and just pour water on top of yes, them and like just a, breathe that in. Like those steam right. showers too. Right, right, right. You just maybe put a towel over your head and mm-hmm. just breathe in the steam. Yeah. So you can so you do that. you don't have to
1: have electricity mm-hmm. to get some moisture in there.
0: Now, another thing that actually causes your nose to dry out is the use of tobacco. If you smoke, that actually may dry out and irritate that the makes nasal sense. lining. Yep. Sure, absolutely. So other things to do is to avoid excessive use of decongestants and... It, uh,
1: because they dry out your nose, right?
0: And beware of blowing your nose really, really forcefully. I know. I've if seen you're people the kind of person that get like a lot, gets violently. a lot of nosebleeds, yeah, right. You definitely don't want to do that. No.
1: And also avoid aspirin and alcohol because those two things thin your blood. There you go. Unless you have to take it medically, I don't mean the alcohol medically. I mean the aspirin. <laughs> Although there's probably some <laughs> people out there who say, "Yeah, I got to take my alcohol medically." My medicinal alcohol. <laughs> Hey, that was a very popular treatment for things 100, 150 years ago.
0: Back in the day. Tink,
1: think about all the tinctures. Yes. What's a tincture made of? Alcohol. Was it really what was in the tincture? Maybe not. Maybe it was just the grain alcohol they were using.
0: Snake oil. Yeah. All
1: right. <laughs> they said, oh, I feel so much better after drinking that tincture. I <laughs> uh, <laughs> bet you do.
0: <laughs> I would too.
1: <laughs> high proof.
0: All right, so let's talk a little bit about trauma in the nose. That can cause bleeding certainly, and it, but it could also result in damage to the bone or the cartilage in mm-hmm. your nose. If you apply pressure with a finger on each side of the nose and go down, here I am doing Don't it do myself it. again. He's
1: demonstrating. <laughs> here, I'll tell you, what. I'll demonstrate for you while okay. you're talking. All
0: right, if you if you take Apply pressure with the finger on each side of the nose and go down. You'll feel the border between the bone and cartilage. Should be pretty noticeable.
1: Yeah, I feel you it. Can you feel
0: it? Okay. <laughs> okay. It's pretty easy to figure out. Now, if there's a Actually, nasal... Actually,
1: it's easier to do with your middle finger and your ring finger together. There you go. Together, oh, right. And you can do that. Sure. doing that rolling down.
0: If there's a nasal fracture, you're going to notice there's going to be swelling Oof. in that area. And, of course, any pressure on the nose is going to be extremely painful. Bleeding occurs in varying amounts or it could be even a crunching sensation when you you medic are examining the person who, with the possible broken nose. Uh, some people actually have bruising under their eyes as a result of the uh, trauma. Now, this injury can cause permanent deformity and difficulty breathing from a damaged septum. There's no major issue with breathing. However, it's mostly a cosmetic problem. Uh, uh, there is the nasal speculum that we mentioned earlier that would allow you to inspect each nostril for blood clots and maybe other abnormalities early on what you want to do is we want to place no, a cold packs over the nose for periods of 20 minutes or so intermittently on and off during the day this is going to be useful only for the first 48 hours but it's going to help reduce swelling and certainly help with discomfort
1: right
0: now a deformed nasal fracture will not straighten out by itself so sometimes the medic has to choose to intervene in survival settings if this is the course of action, it should be performed not immediately, but in about three days or so after the, the initial swelling has subsided. Uh, definitely do not attempt it after two weeks have passed because healing has already occurred. And then you're going to have to break the nose again, essentially, oh. to do your job. Now, be, be aware that manipulation of a broken nose may cause further damage. shouldn't be done if there's modern medical care available because physicians use these special instruments, nasal elevators, things like that. We have some. I think we're going to be adding one or two to the yeah, kit. Yeah, I do. I just need you
1: to uh, print out
0: some instructions. Yes. And others, uh, other instruments that manipulate, pack, or even cast the nose. Now, most of these items are unlikely to be in your medical kit unless you get Nurse Amy's nasal trauma kit. But she has the thermal shield, which is this... Um, oh, that is
1: so neat.
0: Right. It basically uh, it softens up. You soften it up, and then you...
1: In some hot water.
0: In some hot for water. Just
1: a, a couple minutes.
0: And you place it on the nose once once you have straightened it out, and it hardens and becomes like a cast that protects the nose for a period of time. So
1: by straightening out, you mean straightening out the nose. Right. So
0: let's talk about how to do that. Okay. <clears throat> if you have to act, The procedure goes as follows. You sit the patient down because, number one, this is going to be painful. And the pain associated with the procedure may cause lightheadedness. Mm -hmm. You want to have them blow their nose once to eject whatever blood or mucus is there. Then you want to make a triangle with your hands, placing your four finger pads of one hand against the four finger pads of another. It almost looks like you're praying. Then you place the apex of that triangle that you just made snugly at the top of the nose. I'm doing it here. They can't hear you I, if you they cover can't your hear. mouth. I love you. <laughs> I'm fixing my broken nose. <laughs> you place the apex of the triangle snugly at the top of the nose. Have the patient take a deep breath. Then bring your palms together until they're molded firmly against the nose. And Then slowly drag your hands straight down towards the chin. Right.
1: You're sliding your fingers against both sides of the nose, equally hopefully and then bringing it straight down
0: all right you can't be chicken about this This is the kind of thing you have to try to
1: align that nose a, right smack dab in the you have middle to be right so don't put too much pressure in the right hand and not enough pressure in the left hand exactly or the nose is going to be off to the side there you go you want equal pressure when you're sliding those fingers down
0: now if you're successful in reducing the deformity you should then consider placing some moist gauze Packing maybe and inside the nose, and then taping the nose in position both, with the thermo-shield.
1: But we're talking about both nostrils. Right. Because you, again, you want equal pressure on both sides to keep it midline. And then that thermoplastic. Um, splint. Mm-hmm. Splint.
0: It's a splint, right.
1: Is really, really handy. I mean, I tried it just to see how it would feel. Yeah. it, it worked really well.
0: Yeah, it's a solid cast, essentially. You know, once you actually place it on and it dries yep so the pack this packing if you once you place it shouldn't be removed for a couple of days uh keep of it course, moist yep ibuprofen uh acetaminophen these this could be helpful for pain relief and it's something you can stockpile in quantity uh you may notice some swelling and nasal passages that you can improve with let's say a nasal decongestant spray once the packing is removed there you go now in small kids it's Unu- not unusual for a piece of a toy, a food particle, or other object to become lodged in the nose, oh, in the nostril. My That's brother, very common. My brother
1: used to stick stuff up in his nose. Yep. That I can't tell you. How I many see a times lot of kids do that. My mother and father pulled things out of his nose. I think we had to go to the emergency room at least a couple of times. I think one was a nickel.
0: <laughs> a nickel? <laughs> oh, how do you get a nickel up his little Definitely nose? Definitely a
1: pea, I think a marble. Wow. I, I can't remember all of them, but yeah. I mean, he was like two or three. He didn't know what he was doing.
0: (laughs) He just just thought
1: it was funny, I think.
0: Yeah, so there are kids that seem to tend to want to do that. (laughs) And I'm not sure why that is, but it does happen.
1: Silly younger brothers. That's who does it.
0: (laughs) Now, the, the person that has something stuck in their nose usually complains of discomfort, congestion. They may be constantly picking at it because it annoys them. Uh, You might notice some drainage of fluid. Sometimes it's blood tinged. If it's been there a while, it could smell a little bit. That's also something you might see. Now, some people attempt to remove the object with a cotton swab, but this is not the right right way to do this. It often pushes it further in, and that is no good. Uh, Earwax removal curettes, they may work, but there exists the risk of damage to the nasal cavity unless you have experience using it. A simple strategy involves closing the open nostril with pressure from a finger externally then encouraging a forceful blowing out through the blocked one this may actually work for smaller objects if the nostril hasn't become really swollen right makes sense. another option is to blow in the opposite nostril with let's say a bulb syringe while holding the mouth closed and if you do that it might cause some pressure in the blocked nostril and push out the foreign object Uh these might work might not who knows let's see now if If these efforts fail, though, you're going to have to remove it physically. The extraction of a foreign object from the nose usually must be successful on the first or second try. Most kids will not tolerate more attempts. Remember, in normal times... If they'll
1: even tolerate the first one.
0: Right. If normal times, the procedure is often done with sedation. So what you should have is you should have a headlamp so you can visualize it. Uh, with one hand, you want to use nasal speculum to open the nostril while holding a grasping instrument, some kind of blunt-edged por- forceps Right, or so tweezers you don't poke them. That's in the, the other, help right, exactly. Of that. Right. Spray some nasal decongestant into the nostril to decrease swelling, maybe give you a little more space to look at. Uh, and with the child restrained by an adult, you want to carefully grasp and remove the foreign object.
1: I wouldn't say an adult. I'd say adults. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there you go. If
1: you've got some friends, my, you may want page. to invite them over.
0: <laughs> not a bad idea. Uh, it should be noted that a parent or other trusted adult holding the child in their arms <clears throat> is going to help. So For sure. this is something you're not going to be able to do uh, sometimes, on your own.
1: You listen, sometimes kids don't want you to do anything to them. And other kids are like, yeah, wait, whatever. Pull my tooth. Uh, take that out of my nose. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Just depends on the personality of the child.
0: So those are some things that you can do with regards to foreign foreign objects, objects. nasal trauma, and nosebleeds. Nosebleeds. Yay. And now a word from our sponsor. This portion of our show is sponsored by Tomatoes. Tomatoes, those roly-poly fruits that everyone thinks is a vegetable. Put them in your salad or wait until they get really ripe and throw them at your favorite politician. Tomatoes. Available at purveyors of fine produce everywhere.
1: Hey, Nurse Amy here. We're going to talk about valerian. So why would I want to talk about an herb? Well, frankly, and I think most of you probably know this already, that if we have an issue where we're not producing more pharmaceuticals, I mean, think about if Ukraine was isolated. Can they make medicines right now? Absolutely not. There are situations, whether it be... Disasters, financial collapse, um, lack of supplies. I mean, most of our medicines are made in China. Frankly, that they just might not be able to get here for some for some reason, or we have some sort of trade war with them, or we just put sanctions on them and they can't bring things to us. There's a lot of reasons why we might not be able to get pharmaceuticals. Now, valerian's uh, very interesting. It's actually the Latin name valeriana. Aficinalis. Um it's something that can replace some pretty strong medicines for people who have serious illnesses so let's first talk about the plant because I want you guys to think okay so maybe I can't get pharmaceuticals, pharmaceuticals but what can I grow what can I actually grow around me or perhaps gorilla gardening which means finding a place where nobody pays attention to but it's a green space that gets enough water and sunshine, whatever you need for that plant, and it grows fine. And you don't necessarily have to tend to it or have it on your own property, but you know where it is. You should know where a lot of things are that might not be in your property that you can get to and how to process it, how to take it, and what it's good for. So this is a plant that's actually native to Europe and Northern Asia. It grows four feet tall, and it has pink flower heads. But what you actually use for the medicine is the root. That's the part of the plant that's the herbal medicine. It has to be dried carefully. So you have to keep it below 105 degrees. So if it's super hot outside, too sunny, you may blow the drying if it gets too hot. Uh, Below 105 Fahrenheit and that's 40 degrees Celsius before the use. So make sure you dry it properly. Apparently, I have not personally tasted it. I do have the tea. I actually have um, capsules also. But the, the taste of the dried herb is supposed to be sweet and spicy, but somewhat bitter. But the funny thing is, is that apparently the odor is nasty. <laughs> they say unpleasant, but I've also heard nasty. Um, it's been used medicinally since the time of um, Hippocrates which was 460 to 377 BC. And ancient medical texts refer to the unpleasant odor, remember that nasty odor I was talking about, by naming it Pew. And that's P-H-U, but it's pronounced Pew. So I thought that was pretty funny. Because what do we say when we smell nasty stuff? We go, Pew! So that's kind of funny. The benefits. So this is used as a tranquilizer, and that is a strong word, tranquilizer. And you'll understand when I start telling you what it's good for, why they're using that strong word. And also calmative uh, for disorders such as restlessness, nervousness, insomnia, uh, menstrual problems, headaches, nervous stomach, and more. We'll talk about some other things as we move through uh, how to take it. It's good for circulation. And the alkaloids have been used actually to lower blood pressure, which makes sense. Anything that relaxes you can probably lower blood pressure, especially if it's linked to some stress. And what's going to happen during a problem, a post-apocalyptic or a collapse or a war or something, is we're going to have a lot of stress. So this is definitely something you may want to get a hold of. Um, The benefits for specific health conditions include the following. Uh, We just named some of those, but some others are anxiety, menopause-related problems, and restless legs. There's a large-scale scientific study that confirmed Valerian's ability to actually improve the quality of sleep. Now, who out there actually gets good sleep? Probably very few of us, unless you're young and you don't have many worries in your life. But for the rest of us, sleep is a little difficult. So it improves the quality of sleep, helps to relieve insomnia, especially insomnia that sometimes accompanies menopause for women of my age. (laughs) Um, You know, you have hormone changes and you probably have kids that are going off to college and there's just a lot of worries in the world and in your life. And so this can really help. Dozens of over-the-counter sleep aids contain valerian. So there's a lot of options out there. Try to find a good herbal source. I personally love mountain rose herbs if you hear me talk about an oil or an herb it's likely that I have gotten that from mountain rose herbs there's other good ones out there but I've met these people at uh, several shows talked to them talk to them about their process of, of how they acquire the herbs how they process them they do small batches again it's family owned and I just I really trust them A double-blind study with 128 participants actually showed that taking a water-based extract, not an alcohol, but a water-based extract of valerian both improved subjective ratings of sleep quality and reduced sleep latency, which is the time required for you to actually fall into a sleep, get to sleep. So when you're laying in bed for a couple of hours, you eventually go to sleep, but those two hours are time that you could have actually spent sleeping, and you may wake up at the same time with a whole lot less sleep. So this helps you to get to sleep faster, reduces that sleep latency. Valerian relieved insomnia without causing grogginess or a hangover in the morning. Now anyone who has tried sleep medicines, actual prescription sleep medicines, like an Ambien. Or even over-the-counter Tylenol PM, which contains Benadryl. You'll probably notice when you wake up in the morning that you need to hit a cup of coffee strong because you're like, I can't wake up, I can't open my eyes. You're kind of stumbling around trying to take a shower before you can get to your coffee. Valerian doesn't do that. So you actually don't have that that kind of hangover in the morning. A follow-up study found that valerian was as effective in inducing sleep as, get this, barbiturates. And so that's why we're calling this a tranquilizer, because this actually works like a barbiturate, which is incredible, amazing, and strong. And I'm going to give you warnings at the end of this of what you do not mix this with, because it's that strong. You basically need to take this by itself with nothing nothing else. Now these barbiturates can cause the morning sleepiness. So you just can't wake up. But again, this particular study, the second one we're talking about, in contrast, reduced morning sleepiness. The difference apparently was that valerian appeared to be non-addictive. Again, big bonus there. Some of these sleep medicines that, that people get prescriptions for, you start taking it for a while and maybe you run out, you didn't go get your prescription, you didn't realize it, you try to go to sleep, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't go to sleep. You have become addicted or used to or need that medicine so that you can fall into a sleep. Valerian will not cause that. You're not going to become addicted to it and not be able to go to sleep. Um, valerian also has a much more pronounced effect when used by people who have chronic insomnia versus someone who just has maybe a couple of nights of sleep sleeplessness so if you're a good sleeper and you lay in bed for a couple of hours one night valerian may not work for you as well as someone who's been having this problem for a while so don't don't just use it because you've had one night of sleeplessness it's it's probably not necessary you'll probably fall asleep just fine or the next day you know take a nap so it's better for people with chronic insomnia um, and when used for people who are older um, it's suitable for them they fall asleep relatively easy easily but the other issue is they don't stay asleep so they might fall asleep Sleep, take a long nap, say two or three hours, and then pop up and not be able to go back to sleep. That is a common issue of older folks. So valerian helps you not only fall asleep faster, but stay asleep. Go into that nice deep sleep and stay asleep. The herb also relieves panic attacks that can occur at night. And one clinical study found that using valerian with St. John's wort, which has been known to help with depression, was an effective alternative to Valium, an alternative, effective alternative. So anyone who's taking Valium out there may want to discuss Valerian with their doctor or find somebody who knows about Valerian and may be able to help you, uh, like a functional doctor. Researchers say that a combination of hops and Valerian may be as effective as medications such as Valium, for non-chronic and non-psychiatric sleep disorders, as effective. That's that's pretty amazing. Indigestion. Valerian relieves the muscles of the digestive tract when they're under stress. It soothes the digestive system. Think about it. Relaxes. You have stomach spasm. It relaxes it. Just makes everything work better. It relieves. Some types of indigestions, constipation, stomach cramps. Think about you're having stomach cramps. It's painful. This helps to relax. That's the big word for this medicine or this herb is it relaxes things, especially when these problems are due to nervous tension. It can help with irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. Neuropathic physicians sometimes describe valerian as One of a combination of herbs useful in the treatment of irritable bowel syndrome. One of the chemicals produced when valerian is processed is called valerianic acid. Not only does that encourage sleep, but it stops the muscle spasms. So let's talk about how you take valerian. It's actually available in tablets and as tinctures. And the herb can also be made into a tea to drink. People who use valerian for several months may experience some withdrawal symptoms. Not necessarily that they're having spasms or they're having seizures or they go psychotic. But they may have a little agitation and headaches and a little insomnia if you abruptly stop it. And so if you take it every single day for weeks... And you're really not supposed to take it for more than 28 days at a time. But if you take it every day for four weeks, you may have a little bit of a withdrawal. I'm not saying you're addicted. because Remember, we talked about that study that showed it appeared to be non-addictive. It's just that your body got used to it and you have a little problem going to sleep after that. So you may not want to take it every single day. You may want to take it, you know, a few days a week for a while. Used by itself, it's almost always free of side effects. Great news there, although it can increase the side effects of other medicines. So again, remember before I was talking about not taking it in combination with some strong medicines. So what are some of those things? Barbiturates, tranquilizers. You don't want to take it with Xanax. You don't want to take it with Valium. You don't want to take it with Ativan. You don't want to take it with Librium. Symptoms of an overdose, if you take these in combination, can be paralysis, weakening of the heartbeat, lightheadedness, blurred vision, restlessness, nausea, and, and even liver toxicity. So you're combining a medicine with another strong, with, you're combining an herb with a very strong medicine that has similar effects and you're going to, what's called potentiate your medicine, which means make it act much stronger and can cause serious issues. So it shouldn't be used with um, uh, even other prescription medicines like Valium, Elevil, or any other sedative or antidepressant drugs before speaking to someone, preferably a physician. They, they will look these things up and let you know. It is unlikely that anyone's going to tell you it's okay to take these together. You should not consider continuing valerian if you experience heart palpitations or nervousness after taking this. Some people have different effects than most people. There are children, for instance, who are given Benadryl, who instead of going to sleep, because that's the main ingredient in Tylenol PM, puts you to sleep, they start bouncing off the walls. There are some adults that take Benadryl and start bouncing off the walls, and it does not put them to sleep. So if you experience basically the opposite of what this should be doing, and you get nervous, and your heart's beating fast, you're having palpitations, just don't take it again. It's not something for you. It's definitely not for children of any age. And it should not be taken with, again, things that potentiate it, things that would make it stronger, like alcohol. You can't have a couple of beers and then take valerian to go to sleep because guess what? I don't know that you'll wake up. (laughs) You know, these things are strong. They're not to be messed with. I know it's natural medicine, but that doesn't mean you can just go mixing it with a whole bunch of other things. I'm telling you, if you're going to take valerian, don't. Do alcohol, don't take anything else that puts you to sleep. You have to be really careful. You don't want to have too much sleepiness. Research indicates that valerian does not impair one's ability to drive or operate machinery. Mm -hmm. However, you can have some impairment of attention for a couple of hours after taking valerian. I don't think that you should take this during the day if you're going to be doing anything that requires attention. I would strictly leave this for nighttime for sleep. If you have taken this before for sleep and you had no ill effects and it works for you, and for some reason you do have some anxiety or stress during the day randomly, I would say that you probably could take a portion of the tablet or the tincture or the tea in a lower dose. And see if that calms you down and makes you feel a little bit better. So exactly how much you should be taking. I have a table here. And it suggests for inability to sleep, take 4 to 900 milligrams of valerian extract up to 2 hours before bedtime for as long as twenty days. Remember we talked about if you're going to take it every single day. You're only going to do that for up to 28 days. Or valerian extract, 120 milligrams, with lemon balm extract, 80 milligrams. You're going to take the lemon balm extract, 80 milligrams, three times a day, but you take the valerian extract, 120 at night to put you to sleep. A combination product uh, can also be made with valerian extract, 187 milligrams plus hops extract, 42 milligrams per tablet, two tablets at bedtime. Again, they don't want you to take it every single day for more than 28 days. And you can take the valerian, again, we just mentioned this, like 30 minutes to two hours before bedtime. But make sure if you do take it two hours before that you're not out somewhere. You don't need to drive home. You don't need to, to be alert or bathe the children you know, something you need to have attention for. After you don't have to really do anything and you're just chilling and relaxing, then you can take your valerian. Um, Anyway, that is a discussion about valerian. Um, I hope you'll consider some herbs for your garden and learning what's growing around you. And uh, let's have some alternatives for those prescription medicines. All right, have a great day. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye-bye.
0: Hey, here's a portion of our show where I take questions posed to me in the past, often on our friend Jack Spearco's Survival Podcast. If you have questions you'd like to hear me address on the podcast, send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Here we go. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website, doomandbloom.net, co-author of the 2022 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, also designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Chris who writes, question for Doc Bones, how does a person with a history of AFib manage symptoms in a grid down situation and no access to meds? Back in July 2021, I experienced initial onset of AFib and they had to shock my heart back into a normal rhythm. There's a strong family history of heart issues, including my father also having issues with AFib. And I'll take Diltiazem and Xarelto daily. In a grid-down situation where I won't have access to these meds, what would you suggest as natural alternatives to replace them? I'm already on a low-carb, mostly meat-based diet, which has helped with weight and other issues. Chris. Chris, let me start by acquainting our audience with what AFib is. AFib stands for atrial fibrillation It's an irregular heartbeat, also known as an arrhythmia That can be almost unnoticeable in some But can lead to blood clots, stroke, heart failure And other heart-related complications in others At least 3 million Americans are living with AFib today Patients describe the symptoms as episodes of skipping beats Banging against the chest wall Palpitations, racing or quivering heart All sorts of ways They can experience weakness, shortness of breath Chest pain, nausea, lightheadedness All sorts of symptoms too A normal heart contracts and relaxes to a regular beat. In atrial fibrillation, the upper chambers of the heart, the atria, beat irregularly instead of beating in sync to move blood into the lower chambers, also called ventricles. In some cases, the turbulence can lead to the formation of a blood clot. If a clot breaks off, enters the bloodstream, and lodges in an artery leading, let's say, to the brain, a stroke occurs. About 15 to 20% of people who have had strokes have a fib. This clot risk is why people with this condition are often put on blood thinners. Atrial fibrillation could be occasional, can come and go, lasting for a few minutes to hours. Sometimes symptoms occur for as long as a week and episodes can happen repeatedly, in some cases, it's persistent and long-standing, and indeed, the heart rhythm doesn't go back to normal on its own. If a person has AFib symptoms, in this situation, sometimes they treat it with medications. Other times, there are all sorts of different procedures that are performed that may indeed restore a normal heart rhythm. Now, Occasionally, some people have AFib as a permanent condition. In this type of AFib the irregular heartbeat can't be restored, and you have to use medications to control the heart rate and to prevent blood clots. Chris, you didn't mention if your doctor knows why you have AFib. Causes of atrial fibrillation can be related to the structure of the heart, but it can also be caused by high blood pressure, heart disease, lung disease, sleep apnea, an overactive thyroid, viral infections, and even the use of certain drugs or overuse of caffeine, alcohol, and tobacco. AFib is also seen more often in older folks, obese people, and in diabetics, and like your case, Chris, those with a family history. Initially, medications are used to treat atrial fibrillation. Medications may include those that control heart rhythm, those that control heart rate, and those that thin the blood. Antiarrhythmia medications help return an AFib episode heart to its normal rhythm, or help it maintain a normal rhythm. Rate control medications, like Diltiazem you take, slows the heartbeat during episodes of AFib. You're also on Xarelto, a next-generation blood thinner. Of these, only the blood thinner can be replaced, poorly if you talk to the drug companies, by things like regular aspirin or off-the-grid, the salicin found in the underbark of willow, poplar, and aspen trees. I've written about fish antibiotics, but there's no equivalent for the stuff that you are taking, probably because no fish has ever complained of heart problems. In addition to taking medications, there are a number of procedures that can be done, but these require a functioning hospital, qualified medical professionals, and an existing infrastructure. In addition to taking medicines, however, there are some lifestyle changes that might help you. If your irregular heart rhythm occurs more often with certain activities, you may need to avoid those activities if at all possible. If you smoke, quit. If you drink a lot, slow down. If you drink a lot of coffee, switch to decaf. There are stimulants, by the way, that can worsen AFib that are seen in things like cough and cold medicines. Make sure to ask your doctor what drugs you really can't or shouldn't take with your condition. Other common sense options are, of course, eating a diet that helps you maintain a healthy weight. And another thing that's important is the need to manage stress, as intense stress or anger issues can cause heart rhythm problems. People with AFib are often anxious, depressed, or both. Scientists are still trying to figure out what came first, the AFib leading to anxiety or depression, or vice versa. Some options that may help deal with stress include meditation, yoga, relaxation techniques, of course, regular physical activity, a positive attitude, and support from family and friends. Now, I'll really go outside the box and tell you about some supplements that alternative healers suggest for AFib. They include fish oil, taurine, that's T-A-U-R-I-N-E, coenzyme Q10, hawthorn berry, and a Chinese herb called wengzin Kelly, that's W-E-N-X-I-N, then another word K-E-L-I. A 2012 study claims that the Wexin Kelly was effective in suppressing AFib. Was effective in suppressing AFib. It now holds the title of the first state-sanctioned traditional Chinese medicine-based antiarrhythmic drug. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Doctor Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. That's all we have for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Survival Medicine Podcast. We'll see you next time.